And what do you think from your perspective now being a, I want to say the story carrier, someone who carries stories integrated into your being and then sharing them with others. What do you think was lost when we began to print all of our stories? Well, I think what we lost was a connection to the inside of the stories, just as we have lost a lot of connection with the inside of our own beings through the development of the scientific worldview and the empirical worldview, we tend to look at things from the outside in. And when you engage a story, you're looking at the world from the inside out. So I think we've lost some real soulful intimacy Mm. with the loss of the stories. And even if you go through the process yourself of learning a story to tell to a friend, like just learning a fairy tale that you might think you know, like Rapunzel or Snow White or something like that, you go to the original text. First of all, you have all sorts of revelations because we don't know those stories. We think we know them, but we don't actually, unless we've told them. And then you enter into that story and you start to enter into your own material as well, your own soulful perspective, because you are going to tell that story differently than anyone else will. Even if you tell it with all the same patterns and all the same things, your telling of that story is going to absorb the experience that you've had as a human being, and it's going to convey itself through your voice and also through the way you tell it. Well, I I find myself feeling a longing right now Mm -hmm. for a connection to my human family through the passing down of stories and sharing culture in that way. And I know that still exists in many parts of the world, but as a Westerner here in the United States, Mm -hmm. I find myself really longing for these moments, these like the springtime moments where the festival comes and the kids are playing and Mm -hmm. people are making things and the storytellers come and we learn about our history and we hear the same stories over and over again, but as we age, understand different aspects of them as we see ourselves in them. There's something, there's something about the human soul that feels so inherently connected to story. And it's interesting, the stories that if we're not consciously listening to, what are the stories we're unconsciously listening to and absorbing? Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hey, 
Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. Today we have a very real and raw, deep and beautiful conversation with you. And before we get started, I would love to introduce our new sponsor, goddesswell.co. Goddesswell creates the highest quality of women's products for your highest self, specifically formulated by women for women to complement our inherent self-healing power, specifically focusing on PMS, menopause, hormone and moon support, and urinary tract health. So what I love about this company is the intentionality within the medicine and the high, high quality of CBD that's within each capsule. So there's various lines. There's the Harmony line for harmony and mood. There's the Radiance line for PMS and menopause relief. There's the Serenity line for UTI relief. And each capsule has two times more CBD than in any other capsule on the market, plus high quality essential oils to target and support relieving all of these various women's hormonal and sexual health issues. So for me, every day I take the harmony pill for mood and hormone aid and I say a little prayer and I connect with the medicine and I connect with the aliveness of the essential oils and I ask for help with what I'm going through right now in my woman's health journey and I feel like I'm giving myself the care and the attention I need. So what's so cool about Goddess Well and Marcella, the owner's connection with Global Sisterhood, is she's a Global Sisterhood facilitator herself, and she has made it available for the Global Sisterhood community to buy one product and get one free using the code SISTERHOOD. That means we get to buy one for ourselves, and we get to buy one with the condition of giving it to a sister, to spread the love, to spread the health, and to deepen our circle of women who are healing ourselves and transforming the world. So go to goddesswell.co, use the code sisterhood and buy one and get one free to give to a friend. All right, now let's get going with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. Lauren here. And today we have a very special episode for you with Michelle Talker, who has been writing and telling warm, poignant, and humane stories, often from a woman's perspective, for a very long time. She is the author of the celebrated book, How to Ride a Dragon, Women with Breast Cancer Tell Their Stories. And she has recently published The Tower Princess, a book that indie reader called A Gorgeous Feminist Memoir with keen literary analysis. Her stories are layered and resonant, and her characters are real and memorable. Her recent play, The Departure Train, was described by Canadian actor and theater director Lane Coleman as an opportunity to see from a woman's point of view. He wrote, I was a certain me going in, and I'm a different me coming out. A better me. Michelle has had a long career in communications and storytelling. As president of Creative Premise, LTD, a 10-year Toronto-based health communications company, she produced books and films for many organizations and community leaders, including Canadian Pediatric Society, the Canadian Career Development Foundation, and the Women Scientists of Waterloo. 
She has served as an artist-in-residence for the Gilda's Club of Greater Toronto and the Casey House, a hospice and treatment center for people with HIV and AIDS. With a master's degree in history and in journalism, Michelle is passionate about telling humane stories that connect diverse groups through the universal patterns of myth. And she is particularly interested in narratives that express women's interior experiences of healing and transition. I love your bio, Michelle. Welcome, welcome. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for asking me. It's lovely. So I can't help when I hear the word storytelling or myths, think about myself as a little girl. And so I'd love to know a little bit about young Michelle and how myths and stories helped you understand the world and your place in it. Great question. When I was a little girl, I was a singer, and I didn't know much about fairy tales. I wasn't really introduced to them as a child. Nobody read me fairy tales, but I was a singer, and I thought I was going to have a whole life in the theater and in song, and I'd spent a lot of time in the park. We had a park across the street with a hill and a stream, a little bridge going over the stream, and it was a really wonderful place. And I sang every single musical that came into my sphere. (laughs) So I was really feeling that I was destined to be a singer when I was a little girl, but very interested in books and stories and plays and all of that good stuff. Yeah, it wasn't until I got older and started a career in communications that I began to find my way into the world of oral storytelling. And as you were saying before, the feminine way of communicating is so naturally communicating through story. And I found it to be a wonderful way to do communications. So that's how I wended my way into the Toronto storytelling community and began to learn how to actually tell stories, not read them, but tell them. And when you do that, you really have to internalize the story. Hmm. So, What were they called? Bards or something like this? Bards, yes. Back in the day. I think that everything I love is based on the bardic tradition. Yes. Tell me more about the bardic (laughs) tradition. Well, in the Celtic world, there were bards who learned stories and poetry and passed on the history and the lore of the community through oral telling. And the same thing with storytellers all over the world. They've internalized the stories of their communities histories and sacred stories by telling them and learning them that way. So that's how stories circulated all around the world for years and years until they were finally put into print with the development of the printing press and so on in the 15th century, I believe. That's when they first developed the printing press and then the stories went into print. But until then, tellers were very had to really develop their skills of memory and retaining the patterns of the stories, retaining the details so that they communicated them faithfully. And they were really into that. That was really important. It's like having a pattern in a loom that you want to remember and you pass it down. It's the same thing with stories. 
And what do you think from your perspective now being a, I want to say the story carrier, someone who carries stories integrated into your being and then sharing them with others? What do you think was lost when we began to print all of our stories? Well, I think what we lost was a connection to the inside of the stories, just as we have lost a lot of connection with the inside of our own beings through the development of the scientific worldview and the empirical worldview. We tend to look at things from the outside in. And when you engage a story, you're looking at the world from the inside out. So I think we've lost some real soulful intimacy Mm. with the loss of the stories. And even if you go through the process yourself of learning a story to tell to a friend, like just learning a fairy tale that you might think you know, like Rapunzel or Snow White or something like that, you go to the original text. First of all, you have all sorts of revelations because we don't know those stories. We think we know them, but we don't actually unless we've told them. And then you enter into that story and you start to enter into your own material as well, your own soulful perspective, because you are going to tell that story differently than anyone else will. Even if you tell it with all the same patterns and all the same things, your telling of that story is going to absorb the experience that you've had as a human being, and it's going to convey itself through your voice and also through the way you tell it. Well, I I find myself feeling a longing right now Hmm. for a connection to my human family through the passing down of stories and sharing culture in that way. And I know that still exists in many parts of the world, but as a Westerner here in the United States, Mm -hmm. I find myself really longing for these moments, these like the springtime moments where the festival comes and the kids are playing and Mm -hmm. people are making things and the storytellers come and we learn about our history and we hear the same stories over and over again, but as we age, understand different aspects of them as we see ourselves in them. There's something there's something about the human soul that feels so inherently connected to story. And it's interesting, yes. the stories that if we're not consciously listening to, what are the stories we're unconsciously listening to and absorbing? Yes, exactly. The fairy tales in particular attracted me when I started telling stories because, first of all, they had a really bad reputation, which made me very interested in them. (laughs) It was like, okay, what are these stories all about? And I loved the rich imagery of them. So I started to tell these fairy tales. And as I did, I found that my voice even was changing and I was moving into this interior landscape that was really rich in imagery and in human experience, because so many of these stories start with wounds and descents, and people really struggle in these stories. And so I felt that they were like reflective mirrors. I started Mm -hmm. to feel like I could see my experience in this story. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that 
all around the world, people have told these kinds of stories. And so you find similar patterns even in Japan. You find stories that are similar to stories in Europe and stories in India. So these stories are all coming out of a human experience, which you're, you were speaking about, which I think is so beautiful, that we are all part of one human experience. And these stories reflect that human experience. So I started to realize that as I was telling these stories, oh my God, I understand what it's like to be put to sleep. I understand that experience. I understand the experience of being imprisoned in a tower. I get what this means, but I don't understand what it means to me. And that's what sort of started my journey into these stories. So in addition to telling them, I started to enter them. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read the fantasy Wheel of Time? The Wheel of Time. No. I've been reading it. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. It's what you're connecting to. (laughs) It's a 10-part series, 10 10 books. And there's the wheel of time, right? So the wheel of time always spins. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills. And they're in a time where men are not allowed to channel the one power because the men broke the world, channeling the one power. And only women, which are called Aes Sedai, can channel the one power because they're the only ones that are able to not go insane because of what happened earlier on. And so you have this battle of good and evil in many ways. And these women who are awakening to these these powers. And to be an Aes Sedai does not come without people fearing you and hating you and disliking you. But they learn to channel this one power that the one power itself is both masculine and feminine. But the, the women, they can channel the feminine side of the power. But because the masculine side of the power is tainted, men can't channel it without going crazy. And so it's about this hero's journey of this boy named Rand who apparently has reincarnated and he was one of the earlier players that broke the wheel, broke the world earlier. And he has this like opportunity to redeem himself, but he's weakening to the channeling of the one power. But all of the women Aes Sedai are watching him because men are so dangerous. And so I'm in the middle. I don't know how it ends, but I'm in the middle of this epic. And what I love about it is, one, I see myself in it, like a channeler of the the one power and the feminine side of the force, which is misunderstood and somewhat feared. And the men broke the world in the in the past era, right? Mm-hmm. And not because they were bad, but because things got out of control. The power, they lost control of the power. And there's Well, and here we are. Here we are. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> on the brink of that. Mm-hmm. On the brink of that. And the power of the feminine is rising. And it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like that, but it is happening. And it's very interesting, this story, because when you look at the myths and the fairy tales and the way the, way the fairy tales have been handed down and the words that describe them, the wheel, the spinning wheel, and the distaff, 
the distaff side of the family, the women who were spinning, they were the ones who were often telling these stories Mm -hmm. and speaking in this language of myth and imagery that people recognized their own experience in. It functioned like a soul mirror. And this the power to speak this way is something that I think is being redeemed with the rise of the feminine, uh, because we are tapping deep sources of wisdom in these stories, in these, in the use of our imagination, our mythic imaginations to see. And it's interesting to me that there is a distinction in my view between imagination and fantasy. Because when a mythic story is speaking to you like the one you're describing is speaking to you, you're recognizing your experience in it. And that is what the old ones called real imagination. Mm. And William Blake called divine imagination. And Carl Jung called active imagination. It's when imagination is speaking to you so that you can see your own experience in it. And then it informs you about where we've come from, where we're headed, what these deeper currents are really all about. It's almost encrypted with divine intelligence. You know, these stories that speak to our mythic imagination right? That somehow unlock mm-hmm. a code for us to understand ourselves and our relationship to the world and the world at large. I think that's why it's so powerful. Like if you think about religion, these religious narratives and how the impact that they have, especially creation stories, right? The impact they have mm-hmm. when we're within a paradigm yeah. of a certain creation story. But all of these different stories that touch our souls awaken almost like an aspect of our divine consciousness or our I don't, I don't know how to describe mm. this. It's like I'm walking into new territory trying to f- put mm. language to what I'm experiencing right now. Yeah. But it feels like various myths or various stories are like fractals or mirrors of ourselves that are needing to come back online or we're wanting yes. to come back online. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And to go back to the question you had earlier and the insight you had that we do we internalize these stories? Are we can we lift these stories off the page? Are these stories in print? Did we lose something in them going into print? I think what's happening now is that they are being lifted off the page. And if we take the time to go into a story, any story that impresses itself in us, that we were where we remember a scene in that story that might have been told in childhood, and we activate our imaginations to go into that place, we're going to find treasure. Mm. And I've worked with lots of people over the years, and I am always enthralled by the treasure that they find as well as my own. I find my own treasure all the time in these stories, and they've awakened my spirit in a thousand different ways. And my sense of imagination and inspiration, I sort of feel like, okay, so now there's about 12 different avenues that have opened up that we could go down. But just to give you a concrete example, when I was dealing with chronic pain, 
a number of years ago. And I realized that when people asked me, like, what's it like to be in chronic pain? And I would say, oh, I feel like I'm in a prison of bones. And that was my metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I started to look at my metaphor and went, oh, that's interesting. So what's the picture? If I think about even a fairy tale picture, what's the picture that comes up behind that? Well, right away, it was a maiden in a tower. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what tower, but it was a maiden in a tower. And I went all through the Grimm stories, because that's where I knew that there were a lot of maidens in towers. And I went through and I read every single story with a maiden in a tower and got really familiar with the tower princesses and queens and so on. And at the very end of it all, I knew that the story was Rapunzel for me, just that very, very common story. It's common because it relates to so many people. <laughs> so I went there. And the first thing that I realized when I went into the scene that called me, which was her in the tower, I thought, just because I'd never told the story, I'd never actually told that story. I thought that she was like crying for help in the tower, and that the prince comes along on his white horse, and basically she gets out of the tower somehow. But that's not what happens in the story, that she's in this tower, and she's singing in this robust voice. And he hears her from far away, and he comes, because he hears a voice he's never heard before. And he's enchanted by that voice. And later on in the story, when Dane Gothel, who basically means God in German, a godmother, Dane Gothel assigns her to the desert when she discovers their tryst. She sends them to the desert and blinds him. He's wandering in the wilderness. She's living in poverty in the desert. And they are two apart. And I see the world in that, like, she's over here, he's over there, he's blind, he's groping for answers. She is finding a way to thrive in the desert with a pair of twins that she's given birth to. And one day she's singing, and he hears her song, and he's drawn back to her by her song. I think that story goes all the way back to the roots of the Adam and Eve story. And it has so much to say to us, only in this case, we're actually finding out how they make their way back to the garden, how they make their way back to one another. And so the story held so much power for me that I stayed in that story for over a year exploring the scenes, telling them from different points of view, seeing my own life in that reflective hologram that you're describing, that mirror with so many facets in it. And did that help you with your chronic pain? Yes, it did all the way through. It certainly did. I re-storied my situation. Mm. I grappled with it, like I grappled with my fate. I grappled with this. I found freedom where I hadn't found freedom before. And I 
found that because of where I was going and what I was doing with the story, I was inside the world in a way I'd never been before, so much so that I was grateful to have had the time away from work out of the mainstream, able to feel and recover my own soul in the process of moving with pain and living with pain and exploring the relationship that I had with the suffering of the world, Mm -hmm. not just my own. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. It's almost as if that hologram of the story that you lived in was a therapeutic aid to various types of, like when you said you tried on, you told the story from various perspectives, it's almost like doing parts work right? Family systems work with inside of yourself, right? It's similar in essence, mm-hmm. archetypal yes, work yeah. inside of yourself to merge the parts of you that are that were in division or weren't seeing eye to eye. Yes, exactly. And because the stories, a lot of fairy tales, end in some kind of redemptive place, they don't keep you in the desert. Mm-hmm. They don't keep you blind in the forest. They move towards some kind of reunion. And so you can go to really deep places and know that you're contained and that as you explore, you can follow the thread of the path and the story. And this is old medicine. Mm-hmm. This goes back to Hindu physicians who were using fairy tales to help their patients with their mental health issues to find some way to accordance with their situations. I'm smiling right now because as I look at you and listen to you, there's this life force and innocence that just radiates through you. It's a wisdom deeply embodied, but an innocence too, which is so remarkable Mm. to experience. And I imagine my assumption would be that through so much exploration and the different stories that our human family tells from various cultures and finding the very human themes and recognizing just how human many of these themes are when often left in isolation, we feel like there's something wrong with us. That through exploring these themes so profoundly, I'm imagining, I'm creating the assumption that there's a lot of deep self-acceptance in your human experience. Yeah, and things happen. (laughs) (laughs) You get inside the world, inside your own soul, inside the inside of the world, and the outside world changes. Things happen. Just so, for example, when I was going through this experience with Rapunzel, and I was exploring all this stuff with this experience of pain, I went out one day to get some, it's called model magic. It's this clay, this marshmallowy-like clay from my nieces and nephews for Christmas because I couldn't go there to travel across the country at that time. So I wanted to send them something very creative. And this stuff was in foil packages. And so I brought one package home for myself too. And I'm not an artist at all, but I cut it open and I reached in and I took out this marshmallowy sort of substance. And within 15 minutes, a little gnome formed on the palm of my hand. (laughs) It's like my fingers moved all over it with intelligence, all their own. And this little gnome appeared. 
And he said to me, there is many more where I came from. (laughs) And after about eight months, I had over 50 gnomes. They were all around me. They were all around me. I had learned how to paint them and I brought their little faces to life. They were coming out of the clay and they all had the same philosophy of life and all the same message to me. And it took me a while to get it. But because I would take them, I took them down the street to the woman at the store down the street called Lib and Edo's Rose Emporium. And I, I showed her my gnomes and she said, can I sell these gnomes? And I was like, I don't know if they're for sale. And they were like, no, you can give us away, but you can't sell us. We're not for sale. We're not for sale. We're just, and it was like, what are you for? And they were all basically saying, we're just here for your delight. (laughs) Nothing more. And for me living with pain, that was incredible. Because I was never in pain when I was making them. They took me right into this place of utter delight. And it's like I felt as though, okay, I've gone into the underworld. I'm down under in that mythic place. And who comes up for me? Of course, all these underworld personalities. So teach us a little bit about gnomes in fantasy. What what do they do? Where do they show up? What often happens around gnomes? Oh, they're, they show up every now and then. It, they're a bit, dwarves show up maybe more than gnomes, but they're like the earth workers. They're down in the, they're down in the root system of the trees and the moss, and they're down in that, that place where everything is connected. And they spread out and they go down under and into the roots. And they would laugh, actually, like the gnomes had their own philosophy of life. And they would laugh at all the people who they describe themselves as nobody's living nowhere. <laughs> and everybody else who was seemed to be going somewhere was a somebody trying to get somewhere. And they thought that was pretty funny, because somewhere they described as like a mountain. <laughs> And you struggle to get to the top and you pass everybody else and you kick them off the mountain and then you get to the top and there's only space for one person at the top. And then where do you go from there? You go nowhere. (laughs) And they thought that was very funny. Gnomes are pretty wise. (laughs) Nobody's going nowhere. Nobody's going nowhere. Mm. That is something. That is something to consider. Nobody's going Uh. nowhere right here, right now. Yeah. And what's beautiful about this perspective is that I think one of the things that the world really needs right now is, first of all, to validate the subjective. That's something we lost with the rise of patriarchy and with the scientific revolution and all the rest of it. We lost the validation for subjective experience. And when we validate our own subjective experience by coming to know what that is and how we are in this world and examining what we're living and so on, we also move into other perspectives that are not even human. Like, what is the perspective of a tree? What is the perspective of a rose? What is the perspective of a of the salmon in the stream. And we 
enter this lived experience of many. So I think that this is revolutionary because when we are able to do that, we're able to become much more compassionate and much more non-human centric. And we start really thinking about our relationship with the earth and with the other living beings of the earth. And it's just essential. And this is all through the folk tales and the fairy tales all through the world Mm -hmm. is this wisdom that has to do with how allies are made on the path through life and how we make a lot, how the heroes and heroines make alliances with the ant kingdom and the deer and the fish and the trees and someone who is very powerful in the fairy tales who is has the good power that's somebody you're going to see going down the road with the bear and the wolf <laughs> and a whole bunch of other alliances because it's the alliances that are powerful It's the kindness that's powerful, not that one power, not that one top-down sort of dark king. Mm -hmm. So looking at what's playing out, at least here in the West, in terms of our mythology right now, what is the story we are living in your perspective? What is the story we are living Well, I think there's many stories to tell us what the story that we're living is, which I know is a total cop out. (laughs) I recognize I when I asked the question, I had that same thought. I was like, that would be hard to describe just one because there seems to be like multiple stories even emerging. Yeah, I think that, you know, I wrote my very first book was a little story called The Broad Mind. And uh, The Broad Mind is about this little creature who's got eyes that can see into the farthest galaxies and wings for flights of imagination and webbed feet for plunging into the depths of things and arms that can embrace the whole world. And this little guy gets caught by the giants and his wings get clipped off and everything else. And he's made to run races. And So he has to adapt to just run for the giants. And then toward the end of the story, he finds a way to reclaim all these gifts. And I think that if there is one sort of essential, and again, I think there are many, but an essential story would be that we are, we have the opportunity now to reclaim our gifts and to bring back our wings of flights of imagination and our long-range vision. We need it to see the possibilities. We're in a very dark place. And in the broad mind, when he was caught by the giants and he didn't run his race well, he was thrown into a bin of a whole bunch of other used broad minds, and that's where they lived, in this container. They didn't have any sense of possibility. And I think we're in that container because our news is very dark. Our stories are very dark. We are not given a lot of range to recover our imaginations and our long-range vision and see possibilities. This is what we need to do, is reclaim our sense of possibility and our joy and imagination and all these things out of which we can bring about something beautiful. I love this story. 
And it's gotten me thinking of like the giants, right? Who are the giants and do they actually exist or are they this myth that we perpetuate inside of our psyches? Is there like one dark overruling Lord or is it all an internalized myth that keeps us on the rat race? Mm -hmm. I think you answered your own (laughs) question there. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really liberating to remember that we are the creators, that Uh we are the weavers. Yes, yes. We are the storytellers. Yes. And what is the story we want to be telling ourselves? And that gets into an interesting landscape that I would really love to talk to you about around healing trauma and healing imprints Mm -hmm. of belief systems that perhaps we've inherited through our karmic bloodline or through culture or what have you or through experiences when we have an experience and we create a story about why that experience happened to us. Mm-hmm. And then that story becomes how we see the world, the paradigm from which we live. And so you hear a language around, write a new story, write a new story. And I think for some, that's triggering because it's actually quite difficult. It's like they can write mm-hmm. it in their minds, but how do they rewrite it in their their bones and in their system. And so I want to ask you a little bit about that from your perspective. Well, I think it's a long process. I think we have to be, first of all, give ourselves lots of time. We don't want to do things right away and make things go away. But what I've learned is that it's important to understand the nature of our suffering and also make a distinction between what we suffer, and how we suffer the suffering. And one, I think we might not be able to do a lot about the suffering itself, because the trauma is there. But we can work with the way that we story that suffering. Mm. And that's sort of what saved me, because I'm still in pain. I haven't stopped being in pain. It's something that's been with me my whole life, and it's very limiting in certain ways. But I don't suffer it the way I did before, where I adhered to it. I really, it became my identity. And so there's two parts of us, and we see this in the fairy tales all the time. There's the part of us, which might be male or female in the story, it goes back and forth, who is trapped, is under a spell, is, is suffering. And then there's this other part, which again, may be a female or a male who is not trapped, or a brother of another brother, it goes everywhere. But one is trapped and one is not. And the one who is not is the one who's able to walk around the situation, think about it, go looking for different kinds of strategies and wisdom and resources and all those different things to work with the situation of that spell. And over a a period of time, things start to shift. How they shift, it's different for every person. It's what their story becomes. But the wisdom is never give up. Always have the patience and persistence to, to stay with it, work with it. It's your material. And I have great admiration for people who have a lot of dark material to work with. That's really difficult. 
but it also is full of possibility mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It requires a, a different kind of response, which can feel completely paradoxical, like I really should be suffering right now, but I am not going to suffer this. I am going to <laughs> put on that piece of music that I really love, or I am going to... One time, I wasn't eating anything. I just decided I can't eat anything because I can't process anything. So I'm not going to eat anything except for rice and basically rice and ginger tea. And I found that I was completely depriving myself. So I've lost my taste for life. Mm. I've lost my taste. So the suffering itself was giving me the clue. You've lost your taste for life. So I went down to the store and I bought six types of sherbet in every color and flavor (laughs) they had. And I took it home and I tasted, I tasted it. And when I tasted the mango, I thought about a mango sunset. And I thought about all the different things that I could relate to mango and orange and the taste of orange. And I did that with all the flavors. And it had an enormous effect on my spirit mm. and my imagination and my poetry and all sorts of stuff like that. So the clue, in a sense, was in the suffering. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the clue within the suffering points to the direction of healing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So for instance, you not being able to digest much, therefore you had to limit and restrict that was the clue that you actually needed to reach out and taste life more yes, to fill yes. your spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. And out of that comes poetry, and out of that comes an idea, and out of that comes a course, or something that I'm doing that I hadn't done before. And it doesn't mean that we heal completely. It means that we heal our relationship mm-hmm. with the suffering. And there's where all the stuff comes from. I've learned that there are certain things that you can cure and there are certain things that are just mysterious. Mm -hmm. They might resolve themselves one day, but they might not. (laughs) So how are we with that? Oh, that's a journey for me right there. There's a few few things in my life in the, the darker material that I have been given to work with that it, again, what changes is my relationship with it. And that is immensely helpful because out of the change of relationship, as you said, comes creative inspiration, a desire to alchemize it into something beautiful, even though the dark matter Mm. might be there still from the mud, the blossom, the lotus blossoms. That's right. Yeah. And I guess it's all in that response. Yeah. It's again like increasing the capacity of range in our human experience, being okay with the range. Mm-hmm. I think I see in the world a fragility with a natural range of human emotion. People suffer a loss of someone and they sink into a normal, healthy grieving process or a depression, but they get put on a pill versus. Mm be surrounded in the process of grieving by community and upheld in that emotion that's a natural human Mm -hmm. range. Of course, we can veer into dangerous ranges where 
medical intervention is supportive, but I think our tolerance for that healthy human range has become less. And I am curious your perspective on this and how stories can support perhaps supporting, it can support the expansion of the range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think our gift of imagination is so essential to all of this because how we relate to that difficulty is going to be different for every person. It's just an entirely different, it's hard to speak about without speaking about examples, but yeah, it's our imaginative response that that's important. And I don't think that we get a lot of support in how we use our imaginations to begin with. And we haven't really learned that the arts, for example, writing poetry, opening to music and dance and song and painting and all of these things, we've limited our experience of that because we're not participating in it the same way that we might have been doing once upon a time. We're letting other people give us the stories. Mm-hmm. We're handicapping ourselves by not picking up a paintbrush and doing something with it and not dancing and feeling like the only way that we can do that is that we have to have started when we were four and <laughs> gone into an intensive training uh, and become a pre- prima ballerina. Otherwise, we can't dance. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to be in our emotions and be with our trauma if we don't have the tools to have that imaginative response to it. So mm-hmm. then we have to reclaim those and bring them back and give ourselves permission, which our culture doesn't give us, to do something very childlike, which it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's just a natural human thing to do something artistic. I think this is why I feel your innocence, is because I feel you very activated in your imaginative exploration. And I feel like there's suffering, but then when it sinks into depression, it's the loss of, it's an apathy. It's like a loss of who we really are, which is activated by a creative mm-hmm. potential, which is our creative potential is that which enlivens us. It, it seems like we are the image of the creator, right? We are creators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We need the enthusiasm. We have to find a source of enthusiasm and in spirit, be inspirited. And the mythic imagination work for me has really enlivened so many things. Like I stopped saying, oh, I can't draw, I can't sculpt, I can't dance. You know, I stopped saying that because I got so enthused by going into these stories and activating the imagination over and over again and seeing things and writing poems. And then the poem would turn into a song. And then, you know, that you're just activated all the time. So you're going to have the enthusiasm that you need to deal with the difficult things in life. And so it's essential to us that we have that and that we bring it back and give ourselves the permission required to activate that. So I have a random question that's been with me since the beginning. Maybe it's not random. Maybe it's actually very meaningful to you and it's just my intuition picking up on it. But 
as someone who has div- dove so deeply into stories and mythic imagination and how do you relate to being human and one day leaving the body and what happens next? <laughs> oh. oh, boy. I wrote The Departure Train, a play. I'd never written a play before. I had help, I have to say. I had a lot of help from a lot of places, maybe not all here. <laughs> but that depart the writing the departure train brought me into a field of imagination that I had not entered before I'd entered these mythic realms but I had not gone to the afterlife and with the departure train my ma- imagination took me into the afterlife I wrote the story after my mom died wow. and I received a vision of my mom it was very strong it was all wrapped in light and I felt my mom and I wrote a little story about it she was I felt I wrote a story about a woman who was on a train. She had stepped onto a train in the afterlife and she was headed out and she was leaving something behind for her daughter, which I received as a ball of light. It was a ball of love and it was filled with my mother's love, more love than she'd ever given me in life, could give any more love than she could have given me in life. And I followed her, in a sense, when I wrote the play, followed the trail of the story that led into the afterlife. And the feeling that I have myself about all of this is that there isn't enough time in this life to do a great work. You have to see that you have many lifetimes in order to do the great work, even to imagine the great work. And so I think that an enthused spirit that has a great work to do is going to live a long time, many lifetimes. That's how I feel about it. And I think that from the inspiration that I got from my mother or from her spirit that made that story possible, I feel that it's all fundamentally about love. All of it. It's all about love. And how much love you have, how much love you're burning with, like the sun, that you want to give and keep giving. Mm. (sighs) That was beautiful. I had chills, which will lead us to our last question. We ask this to all of our guests. If in this moment, you could be a channel or a voice for the great mother. What would she say through you for all of us? She would say, you are loved. You are far more loved than you know. And so it is. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, thank you so much. This conversation has felt restorative and enriching for me. I hope that everyone listening feels the same. If you loved this episode, please go ahead and let us know by leaving a review. And Michelle, how can women who are following along find your work? Well, you can come to my website, which is michelletalker.com. And you can, if you want to look at the books and various talks, and short films and stuff like that. Or if you want to go into 
the fairy tales, you can go to a website called wonderlit.com. And on Wonderlit, it's a course, some courses, two courses. So an introductory course that'll get you into stories, into a fairy tale that you're interested in. And the other one is more of a deep journey. And there's something on that site called the Story Finder, which is perspectives from stories all over the world. So you can look at stories from all these different perspectives and see what resonates with you, which can begin your journey with these mythic stories, if that's your interest. Mm. And then the other site is the departure train, which is the play. And it we are just opening it up and giving it to the world right now. You can listen at your leisure. It's 85 minutes long. It takes you into the afterlife <laughs> on the journey of a woman who's leaving behind some gifts for her daughters. And yeah, we're just asking for donations, if you wish, or comments which is just as valuable to us. Mm. So We will put all of these links in the show notes for all of you to find. Thank you, thank you, Michelle, and thank you to all who are listening. Mm. Big love. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It is such an honor every time to be able to host these conversations and to share the stories of the beautiful people we get the opportunity to interview. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and write a nice note, or you can do so on Spotify by leaving stars. We so appreciate every single one of you that's taken the effort to go out and to share with others and with our community about how this podcast has touched you. It really means so much to us since for us, this is a labor of love. And so thank you for giving back in that way.